This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Monday. I hope you had a really great weekend. Um, I'm kind of moving slow. I'm just going to have to admit it. Some days are just, you know, I just feel that way. Um, I started the day, though, kind of like angry. I hate starting the week angry, but I did. Maybe that's why I'm feeling slow now. Um, I, I started it angry because on Friday night, if you're watching the show, thank you, uh, I talked to you about this this. Um, Weird attack in Colorado, at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Two, two people were like shot to death in the dorm. That's not normal, right? So like my spidey senses are tingling and I'm thinking this is serious and I hope they're, you know, all points bulletin and all the rest, but they're not telling us anything. The cops are just like, nothing to see here. It's targeted. Everybody's fine. We're just investigating. And then I find out this morning... This is why I'm mad. They knew on Friday night who they were looking for. They actually had an arrest warrant signed on Friday night. They didn't tell us. They didn't tell you. And if you're watching in Colorado, particularly Colorado Springs, um, you should be more mad than I am because that killer, whoever it is, and there is a guy sitting in jail right now suspected of it, that killer was wandering amongst us, wandering amongst us in the cabin, you know, free to roam in the cabin. Uh, we could have been on the lookout. We could have potentially pulled him in on Saturday or Sunday or maybe Sunday night or Monday morning. So that's why my week kind of started off like I was angry because I don't think the public should be told nothing to see here. It's just, you know, it's, it's targeted. I heard that before. I heard that when those four kids were murdered in Idaho at the university. Nothing to see here. It's targeted attack. Everybody's safe. Baloney. If somebody pumps lead into two people and kills them, we are not safe. Don't tell me it's a targeted attack. Tell me who it is. Tell me what you got. Show me the video camera you probably got from the surveillance all over a campus. Help me help you. Anyway, we're going to go into that a little bit more. And then do you remember that judge uh, who's just, you know, doing what she's supposed to do? She's judging. And she's about to pass sentence on that guy when this happens. This, my friends, is what you call uh, an alleged attempted murder because that's what that guy is charged with. We saw, I mean, it looked bad. It looked bad. There's a lot more we did not see. Tonight I'm going to show you what happened to her. The injuries she sustained. She is speaking now about the injuries that she got. What injuries the other guy got. A couple of guys who were standing nearby, you know, launched themselves on top of him and, you know, pulled the attacker off of the judge. One of them, you know, will never be the same. Giant chunk out of his head. And the aftermath. I didn't expect it, but there's like blood everywhere. So we're going to show you a little bit of the aftermath. You're going to hear about the judge, what she says about her injuries tonight. And then also, uh, this 
is, was such a surprise to me. So there's this great series that's launching tomorrow on the CW called Crime Nation. Get it? News Nation, I'm on that. And Crime Nation, I'm on that one too. And on Crime Nation, we're digging into some of the biggest crime stories. Like this is the era of true crime, right? There are just so many people fascinated by true crime. Me as one of them. And Crime Nation is digging into all of these just extraordinary headlines that we can't shake. The first one that airs tomorrow is on the Delphi murders. And you probably know it's been seven years since those two young girls went hiking in Delphi, Indiana. And they were found uh, dead the next day. So Abigail Williams was 13 at the time and, and Liberty German was 14 at the time. And I just, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. Seven years we say these things, but then we think them through. And these were the girls um, as they were, you know, last seen before they were murdered. But Abigail would be 20 and Liberty would be 21. That should tell you how long this has been, especially for their families and those who love them. Tonight, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the, the information that's coming out in, the, in this new Crime Nation documentary series. Big, deep dives on Tuesday nights, um, two hours long into each of these cases. And we're unearthing some new stuff that people haven't seen or heard before. Maybe even police haven't seen or heard before. One person who says, um, look, I'm connected to this thing, and I think you got the wrong guy. So that's all coming just in the moments ahead. Let's start here, though. We're coming up on four days. Four. Since two people were gunned down, murdered in a dorm room at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. And tonight, there is a suspect sitting in a cell, charged with murder, and that's great. You know, a suspected cold-blooded killer is uh, no longer roaming the streets of that beautiful college town or any of the rest of our towns. Oh, that's nice. Here's the problem. The suspect was wandering those streets for three long days and nights while the police stood in front of the cameras and said there was nothing to fear. No need to be on the lookout. No ongoing threat. Ongoing threat, those are the words. Nothing, you know, to threaten the rest of us. And we know now that when we took that story to air on Friday night, just hours after the murders, uh, police knew exactly who they were looking for. They knew. They had an arrest warrant signed. They knew the guy. They knew what he looked like. You know, it's just like it, we all could have been looking. The university, the, the, the kids, the, the, the students there, residents of Colorado Springs, we all could have been looking for him. Maybe he was in our living room, you know. His name is Nicholas Jordan. There's the picture. 25 years old, from Detroit. He is a student on that very campus. Although I, look, I'm just going to go out in a flyer here, but I'll bet he's not a friggin' student anymore. He's got a different room he has to be in. Not a classroom. He's going to be in a courtroom tomorrow. True to form, that's it. That's all we get from the police about this guy. His relationship to the victims, his alleged motive, I don't know any of that. They won't tell us. We do have this booking photo, though. We just got it a little while ago, so maybe this is the first time you're seeing it on TV. Uh, the arrest itself happened early this morning because officers uh, knew what his car was. Right? They had all this information they didn't tell us. But they happened to spot Jordan's car. It was about four miles from the crime scene. So did you rest easy this weekend if you were on campus? They were armed with an arrest warrant when they picked him up. And Nicholas Jordan's name was on it. And it charged him with two counts of first-degree murder. A warrant that was issued way back on Friday night. First-degree murder. Not disclosed until today. I'm going to just 
stop for a hot minute and tell you, if you've got a warrant for first-degree murder, you know things. You have evidence. You've seen something in that dorm room at that crime scene that says, like, first-degree premeditated murder. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't self-defense. You're charging with first-degree murder. you got a first-degree you know, alleged murderer running loose, and you don't tell us. We've seen this move before. The authorities in Moscow, Idaho. They initially called the quadruple murders on King Road a targeted attack, just like this one. They said there was no reason for anybody else to be concerned. Really now? Really? Because that doesn't seem to be the case to me. (laughs) The suspect they eventually arrested, Brian Koberger, he drove all the way across the country before being taken in at his parents' home 47 days later. So what I want to know is if Nicholas Jordan's a student at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, did he also live in a dorm, the dorm, the dorm, next door? Did he have a card key? Were there cameras? If there were cameras, and please, in this day and age, how could there not be security cameras on dorm buildings? Uh, Why wouldn't police have put out a photo, a video? How about just an itty-bitty sketch? How many people was this suspect able to interact with after allegedly pumping bullets into two people in a college dorm? The victims are identified as 24-year-old Samuel Knopp. He was a senior at that university studying music. And Celie Montgomery is 26-year-old non-student. She was from Pueblo. Also, Celie was the mother of two small children. I'm joined now by News Nation national correspondent Caitlin Becker. I was having a great Monday until I learned they knew who they were looking for on Friday night. As I was on television Friday night saying, we don't know anything. We don't know who it is. They're not saying anything. We don't know even if there's like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even tell us if they thought it was murder. We, we all kind of thought it was murder, suicide, right? Like that's kind of what it was. There's nothing to fear here. These people were known to each other. We all thought it was murder, suicide. And apparently there's an alleged murderer roaming about us for 60 hours. What do you know um, about the inside story in the dorms? Unfortunately, Ashley, there isn't a lot to know about how these people allegedly knew each other. The first thing that I thought once we realized it was not a murder-suicide and when the police said that the victims and the suspect were probably known to each other, I had to think that this was a targeted attack, that perhaps there was a reason that this happened and cops knew the motive. You have two people, 24 and 26 years old, in a dorm. And when I say dorm, I actually think this is a bit of a misnomer, Ashley. When you're looking at these cam- this campus dorms right here, those are actually apartments. So yes, they are through the university, but it's not a dorm the way maybe you or I are thinking about a dorm room. You've got two roommates and a bed in there and an RA down the hallway. These are specifically for upperclassmen. You have to be 21 years old or older in order to live there. You have to be a sophomore or above. So we're thinking of these people in an apartment setting. So you've got a 24 and a 26-year-old male and female in an apartment setting She's either staying over 
or up late partying because these calls came in for the gunshots around late 5 a.m., early 6 a.m. So what are two people doing there and why is this suspect also in the building? So I don't think security is as strict in these apartments as it is in a traditional dorm room because you have adults on there and not necessarily 17, 18, 19-year-olds. But we don't know how these people are connected in any way. We know that the suspect and the male victim, the 24-year-old, were students, but Celia was not a student at the university. She's a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and she just sort of lived in the area. So we don't know how the two victims knew each other and then how the suspect was related to those victims. Right. And, you know, I know the Internet's on fire saying, oh, this was a love triangle or, oh, this was a drug deal gone bad. I mean, everybody has to speculate because <laughs> police aren't saying anything. So the victims, I mean, uh, Samuel Knopp, I saw some pictures today that were really heartbreaking, looked like he was really, really deep into his music program. And then Celie Montgomery, my God, she, her kids are five and seven. It's, what else do we know about them? You know, Samuel Knopp was a really talented guitar player. I actually spent some time today looking through some of his concerts at the university. He was really talented. He was very invested in his music. He's a twin sister. He grew up about 60 miles north of the campus. And Ashley, what you thought upset you earlier was not knowing that there was a suspect out there. This is probably going to make you irate because Samuel's mother knew that there was a shooting on campus and that someone had died, but she didn't know that it was him for quite some time. She actually posted on Facebook earlier in the day on the 16th on Friday. I think we have a little bit of that that we can show you. Her Facebook post is right here, and I can read to you what she said. She said, there are reports of an active shooter on campus at UCCS where our son Sam is a senior, at least one person dead. I haven't heard from Sam. So she then went on to express her ire over gun violence and then to know that she found out just a few hours later that one of the victims was, in fact, her son had to be utterly heartbreaking. Oh, that's just, you know, God, poor woman. Um, Celie Montgomery was... um two little kids at home. What else do we know about her? Should we, do we know fair bit less about her than we do about Samuel because she was not a student, so the university hasn't really spoken out quite a bit about her, but you can see her right there. She was beautiful. Uh, according to LinkedIn, she was a copywriter. She worked in health and wellness. She has those two little kids. There's no word now on who has those children, um, but I would hope that they're in the care of some sort of family, but we don't know, again, how she is connected to Samuel and why she was on campus that night. So, you know, here we hear the police saying, you know, nothing to worry about, uh, targeted attack, no worries. How is the, is it business as usual? Just boom, everyone's back in class and going about their business if the police seem to think, you know, don't, don't worry about it? Well, it is business as usual within the community, but on the campus, classes were canceled and the university is putting together some healing programs for other students to sort of deal with the tragedy. There was a march planned and the university is offering some healing services to any of those students who might need some help getting over this. I mean, the police can say until they're blue in the face that there is nothing to fear here. But if you are a student on campus, you're young, you're out from your hometown for the first time probably in your life. And to think that that could have happened in your dorm room, the place that you're supposed to be safe and protected, whether you are in an on-campus apartment or a traditional dorm setting, is really scary. And it does bring into question how strong or lax the protections are for these students. In the student handbook, I will tell you that it does say that firearms are, of course, banned in any of the residents, but 
just because they're banned in the residences if you're someone with a firearm who's trying to bring it in somewhere. And a list in a handbook saying you can't bring it in there is certainly not going to stop you. Uh, maybe no magnetometer there, but I, I can't wait till we see some video um, of the you know entryway into that dorm, that you know the older student dorm, um, because every single entrance now has some kind of surveillance and a key card. So did that did that student who was arrested? Did did Nicholas Jordan have a key card? Did he live in that dorm? Uh, did he slip in behind somebody? Because I've covered cases where that was the you know, that was the, the evidence that sealed the deal, slipping in behind someone. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened here. I don't know what happened here, which, again, is part of the ire. So much being kept from us. Caitlin Becker, thank you for that. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Ashley. All right, I want to bring in Robert Anzalotti. He's a retired chief of detectives for the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office in New Jersey. Robert, why? Listen, this is your business, not mine. And I know, there, I know that police like to try to keep some of the policing close to the vest. Uh, but when there is a, an alleged double murderer out there who apparently has no compunction about pumping lead into two innocent young people like this, that to me doesn't say nothing to fear. Why would they keep this from us when they knew who he was on Friday night? They didn't say a word till they had him this morning. Yeah, so I totally get um, uh, why you're upset, Ashley, for sure. First, thanks for having me on. And, and second, I want to agree with Caitlin on the devastation uh, for not just Sam, Samuel's family and Samuel's mom. So upsetting uh, that she posted that and then had to hear that it was her, her actually her son involved as a victim. But, uh, of course, the female victim as well. The devastation that violence leaves uh, in the wake of a violent act, um, it, it really does impact not just the immediate family, but the community at, at large. And therein lies your question of, like, hey, why don't we have more information? I think what, what everyone needs to know is there's kind of competing interests here, right, in any of these uh, high-profile cases. There's that uh, public desire and thirst and, and a need to know but uh, there's also the, uh, the fact that the integrity of the investigation begs for us to not release too much information. Now, when we talk about the idea of, hey, there's an arrest warrant and we have a suspect, why would you not disclose that? There's a number of reasons. One is perhaps they were tracking the suspect. Two, we, you know, we don't want the suspect to know we're onto him because we don't want him to dispose of, of potential evidence, um, potentially dispose of means that we're tracking him. If they could have been on his cell phone tracking his movements. Perhaps they had cooperators that they believed were going to help bring him into pocket where they were going to arrest him sooner, and it just didn't happen on the timeline that we all would have liked. Um, it, there's a balance there. It's a fine line. I've been on both sides of it. Uh, I've gone public on cases and homicide cases uh, where we've asked for the public's help to locate people, and it has helped and, and worked out. And there's other times when you release that information too soon, and that suspect goes in the wind and goes underground and becomes that much harder to find. Yeah, no, I hear the fine line there and the balance. I always think, though, that if there's someone out there that's that deadly um, and you know who he is and you know what he looks like and you plaster it all over the news, you at least do two things. Number one, you get that many more eyes looking for him for you. So he can't go into the, into the wind. Um, and you also get people looking with a head on the swivel to protect themselves. And that's the bigger issue is that people were in danger with that man allegedly um, wandering. I do want to ask you, just because this is your business, you know the yeah. set of facts that I know. They're pretty thin, but I know that you probably have some working theories just because you've been at this rodeo. What are they? 
Uh, so, of course, just like everybody, as soon as I heard on Friday morning what this was, the first thing that comes to mind is a murder-suicide, right? You hear male, female, uh, that scenario is played out a thousand times. So when I'm sure when the detectives were first called to the scene, they may have been thinking the same thing. Now, uh, quickly, the facts at the scene, um, the, the actual cause of death, the, the wounds that they see are showing them, no, this is, in fact, a double homicide. Now you have to start piecing together, uh, you know, who, this, who could have been the, the offender here. Now we know that they knew each other, allegedly, from the police. Uh, that's what we're being told, is that they, uh, this was a targeted incident. So, again, I don't want to speculate as to what led this to it. Was it a domestic? Was there a prior relationship with this offender, with either of the victims? Uh, as you mentioned, you know, when you talk about drug deals gone bad, I don't want to, I don't want to go down that road. These, both of these victims seem very innocent uh, people, have no idea what their backgrounds are, if that's the case. Um, you know, who knows? Could be anything. Could he have been infatuated with one of them? And, and that's where it is. Could it have been a simple argument? Uh, they were all hanging out together. Anything is possible and on the table. And I think that's another reason why the cops keep things so close to the vest. Remember, they're still looking for witnesses to come forward. They don't want to let out too much information to the public that then taints the potential witness pool where we take a statement now from somebody. Sure. And now you know, fast forward to they take the stand at trial on behalf of the prosecution and uh, they're attacked their credibility is attacked because they could have heard this information from a newspaper account or a press release that the, the police did. So, you know, again, very competing interests on how much information we let out there. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why we keep things close to the vest. In terms of speculation on why this event happened, there's lots of reasons, but I'm sure it's going to come out as, as things proceed in court. Yeah, there's three people who have cloud, you know, cloud information, which I'm sure is being mined uh, pretty assiduously. Now, I've got only 10 seconds left, but I do want to ask you, first-degree murder charges, uh, that, that's, it doesn't get any more serious than that. They've got to have some kind of evidence left behind at the scene that's definitive, that there was maybe lying in wait, something that was premeditated. What do you think it is? And again, I only have a couple seconds left. I think there's probably uh, very likely some good witness accounts that say uh, exactly that why this guy came into the apartment and that it was just that it was premeditated. It was an attack from the beginning. It was not something that was a happenstance, you know, kind of manslaughter issue. This was this guy came to this yeah. apartment to kill these two people. Might have been hiding and uh, vis visibly hiding uh, on camera, too. So we'll just wait. Hopefully we'll get more information on this. In the meantime, Robert Anzalotti, just super invaluable information. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks much. Thanks for having me. We'll see you again shortly. I know that. Okay, coming up next, the judge who's lucky to be alive is speaking out about the day that that felon that she was sentencing lunged for her straight over the bench. It turns out she was very badly hurt, as were others who helped to pull the attacker off here. Tonight, we have brand new pictures that you haven't seen before, and the judge, in her own words about how she's doing, a month after she was nearly killed in her own courtroom, plus the family of the man charged with attempted murder, reveals why they think he did it. All those details in a minute. A judge on the bench in her own courtroom surrounded by deputies and bailiffs with guns should not have to keep her head on a swivel and worry about being sucker punched or sucker attacked. But that's the world we're in. Because you might remember this a few weeks ago. Judge in Las Vegas looks up a little too late to see a violent criminal flying through the air, coming straight for her. Today she's finally breaking her silence and she is talking about this attack. An attack that honestly could have killed her. That's the charge. Attempted murder.
Here's a reminder of what happened to her that day as she was sentencing a felon for assault. Take a look. Get off her, get off her, you can hear them. As the judge actually goes down, she bashed her head on the desk. Her glasses went flying, the flags go down. The attacker actually ended up like having a fistful of her hair that he ripped out of her head. Certainly looked like he was trying to kill her. And thank God the few people who were near the bench got a hold of him as soon as they did. But you can see it took a long time to get him off her, and they had to like do body blows over and over again to stop him from this violence. Tonight, we actually have some never-before-seen images from this courtroom from the other direction. Look at this picture. This is the aftermath of that attack. There is actually blood on the bench. There's blood all over the floor, all over those papers. It's like a complete scene of chaos from where she had been sitting quietly beforehand. This is the target. 62-year-old Mary Kay Holfus. Um, she is of the 8th Judicial Circuit in Clark County, Nevada. She um, ended up having to go to the hospital that day. Uh, she hit her head pretty seriously on the wall in that attack. Then there's also Shane Brandon, the deputy marshal in Judge Holfus's courtroom. He suffered a dislocated arm and a gash that I've seen the undigitized picture there. It was horrendous. I mean, it was like he was missing a piece of his head. He required 25 stitches to put the skin back in and the, the piece back in. Um, the law clerk uh, who jumped into the fray also was hurt in this attack. And now Judge Holthus is telling reporters how she is actually doing now since she was jumped in her courtroom. Let me read you some of the, the things that she said. This is, this is Judge Holthus. It hit hard. It was literally like getting hit by a car when you're not sitting in a car. I had a headache for a couple of days. Like I said, I still can't sleep on my left arm, and it's still inflamed. My tailbone for two weeks was killing me. I took two weeks off um, a treadmill, and all I do is walk on it, and I couldn't do that. So she walks on a treadmill. She couldn't even walk on the treadmill. I lost clumps of hair, but I guess that's really not, or that's not really, and then she just sort of stopped, and she said, it's emotionally painful. The judge is also sharing this picture of her arm, black and blue, after the attack. So the guy who thought it was a good idea to assail a judge, beat up a judge in front of a room full of cops and witnesses and bailiffs, Diobra Redden was in court that day for sentencing on a battery conviction, and he's no stranger to violent crime. He's already been locked up a couple of times for domestic assault and battery. And this was the day after the courtroom attack, some body cam video showing Redden still not behaving for the deputies. He actually spits in the face. Nice. Spits in the face 
of a corrections officer trying to walk him to his cell. Look at that. By the way, that's also assault. And it's also why he probably will look like uh, you know, spit mask. Oh, just, you know, every time I see that, it just gets so frustrated. Um, they have to put spit hoods on a lot of these guys. They probably should have put it on them right here. Oh, and what do you know? Spit mask. A few days later, this was him back before the same judge, Mary Kay Holfus, this time under way tighter control, where she ended up sending him to jail for four years on that original battery charge, the one that she was actually sentencing him for when he came flying over the bench. So that thing that he did during his sentencing actually earned him a grand jury indictment for attempted murder, battery on a protected person, a judge, and, you know, seven other charges, various and sundry. His arraignment is scheduled for next week. I guarantee spit mask. So now let's go to his side of things, his family. Family is weighing in as well. They say he is schizophrenic and that he wasn't on his meds that day that he flew over the bench and attacked the judge. Just that day, huh? Is that what happens if he doesn't take meds? We're all kind of at risk. We're going to see if that flies at his next court appearance. It's safe to say he's not going to get another chance to make a run at the bench a second time. Still to come. Seven years have now come and gone since two innocent kids, girls, killed on a hiking trail in Delphi, Indiana. It took five years to name a suspect and arrest a suspect. And now, with a double murder trial finally on the horizon, the evidence is getting a second look. And a big part of the state's case is getting second-guessed. That's next. Last week marked seven years since 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German were murdered on a hiking trail in Delphi, Indiana. Abby would be 20 years old today, and Libby would be 21. And their friends and families have never been the same. Neither has the community where they were killed. The police spent more than five years searching for a suspect, the case seemingly growing colder and colder by the day. And that's despite video evidence captured on one of the girls' cell phones, a man's voice giving the girls a stern order. Guys, down the hill. There was also closed-circuit footage of a man leaving the area that day and an unspent 40 caliber bullet that was found near the girls' bodies. But finally, in 2022, investigators arrested a local manager at the CVS named Richard Allen. But Allen has always denied any involvement, and his defense team has pointed out the bullet, which somehow popped out of a gun without being fired, is not conclusively, conclusively traceable to any gun, let alone Allen's gun. There's also the alleged nature of the crime scene, the defense says that leaked photos suggest that the murders may have been ritualistic and that they may have been the work of white nationalist cult members. Alongside this show on News Nation, I'm also involved in a new series launching tomorrow on The CW, and it is called Crime Nation. And Crime Nation is taking a deep dive into this case and asking some hard questions tomorrow, like, was the crime scene compromised? Did a small-town police force with little homicide experience mishandle the evidence in the case? Could Richard Allen be innocent? Here's a sneak peek of an exclusive interview that may cast some doubt on whether police actually do have the right man behind bars. 
It wasn't long before the police started to really zero in on one person of interest among others, the man who owned the land where those girls' bodies were found, 77-year-old Ron Logan. Ron Logan generally met the description of the man that was seen in the picture, potentially the bridge guy. And there are reports that he has been violent towards women in the past. When I seen the picture of the, the bridge guy, I knew for certain that it was Ron Logan. That's, that was his figure that I seen. My name is Connie Dillman. I knew Ron Logan, and I had a relationship with him for approximately six years. This is my backyard. My backyard just happens to be bigger than most people. How many people have a murder committed at their home in their backyard? And there's the crime scene down there. See how the ground's much more matted down right in there? I think you're right there. I was at my house. It was on the news when I heard it. The very day that I heard that Abby and Libby were murdered on his property. And I said, oh, my God, he finally killed somebody. And I knew that he killed Abby and Libby. I knew he, he's capable of doing something like that. Ron Logan died in January of last year without having ever been named a suspect. Richard Allen's trial is now due to start in October. So be sure to tune into the rest of the premiere episode of Crime Nation. It's tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central on the CW Network. And still to come on this network, things could be about to get a lot worse for Vince McMahon and the WWE. A brand new website has just launched and it wants to do to the WWE what personal injury lawyers did to Big Tobacco. So who are they? And could you be due a big settlement. That's next. Does the phrase, you may be entitled to significant compensation, tell you anything? Apparently, the sexual abuse scandal that cost Vince McMahon his kingship at the WWE now has the personal injury lawyers circling. A law firm based in Puerto Rico has just launched a website called wwesettlements.com. It has a sign-up section with the message, quote, if you are sexually assaulted, made to feel uncomfortable, or witness sexual abuse by Vince McMahon or anyone from WWE UFC, you may be entitled to significant compensation. As you know, the lawsuit that started all of this was filed last month by a former WWE staffer named Janelle Grant, who claims that McMahon and fellow executive John Laurinaitis raped and sex trafficked her to entice at least one wrestling star to sign a big contract. Uh, last week, I was joined on the show by Kara Papia. She is the best friend of former WWE superstar Ashley Massaro. Massaro died by suicide back in 2019. In 2006, though, she was allegedly raped by multiple U.S. servicemen while on a WWE trip to entertain the troops in Kuwait. She claims that she told McMahon as well as McMahon's daughter, Stephanie McMahon, and other executives exactly what happened on that trip, but that they covered it up in the name of business. Just in the last few weeks, other former WWE employees have said there are still more allegations to come out of the past, some even worse than what we've already heard. 
I am joined now by Paul Roma, a former WWE wrestler who spent more than a decade with the company throughout the mid-80s and the early 90s. He now runs a wrestling school called Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling. Paul, thanks for being on the program. Um, 84 to, to 91, you're with WWE. Did you ever hear about some of this kind of um, awful behavior, any of these allegations? Does any of this sort of sound like the Vince McMahon that you knew? Um, yes, um, it was... Um it was, it was pretty regular. You heard it on a regular basis for the most part. Uh, then you wouldn't hear it for a while, and then it would come full circle. Um, but it wasn't, you know, so much Vince as it was the people that he had surrounding him. Uh, you're talking about a industry where you have um, young, uh, good-looking, well-built uh, men in the ring, um, half naked, three quarters naked, actually, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it left the door open and, you know, he had a lot of uh, people around them, vice presidents and uh, bookers that uh, were very much into that. And they put you in a really, really bad situation, especially once you started making some money, you kind of get comfortable with that. And then you find out that your job's on the line, either do it or get fired. And, I witnessed uh, quite a few that walked away. Money wasn't worth it for them um, to go that route, so to speak. Um, what had happened to those people um, that, you're, that you're saying? You're mentioning that you, you heard Paul quite a few that walked away. What had happened to them uh, that made them want to walk away? Um, they were asked to do things, uh, sexual things, with other men that they did not want to do. Uh, my former partner being uh, one of them. And um, I was actually in a cab ride in Washington. We were coming back, and the gentleman next to me kept saying, it's not, you know, it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth the Benjamins. It's not worth the Benjamins. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, it's not worth it. And I said, what are you talking about? What's not worth it? And he says, it's just not worth it. And he, we got back to the hotel. The next day, we were filming it for our second TV taping, and he was gone. He jumped on a fight and went back home and never showed up again um, to wrestle. And he had an unfortunate accident, hit his head and uh, passed away while he was asleep. He had a bleed on the brain. <clears throat> Did he ever tell you what, what it was that he said wasn't worth it? Um, not, not, he didn't tell me who. He just told me what to, to what do what it? they wanted him to do, uh, sexual favors. And my former partner, uh, one of my former partners, uh, when I was part of the uh, Young Stallions, uh, he was propositioned. And um, he said he went to one of the agents and told him what had happened. And I said, well, why would you do that? You, you just ratted on, on both of us. So, you know, he kind of threw us both under the bus. Just starting out. So to be clear, Paul, to, to be clear, the, the person in the cab who said it's just not worth the Benjamins, that, that person told you that he was propositioned. Um, we, he wouldn't tell you who it was, if I'm clear, but he told Correct. you what happened. Did he tell you that this, these were executives with the WWE that had propositioned him? Well, that's, let's leave it this way. That's all it could be. If someone's going to give you money, and it has to be that. 
There is nothing else. It's not going to be one of the other boys that, that you're wrestling with. They're not going to offer you money. Um, it's even, even my former partner, same thing. They offered him money, drugs, just lay on your back. You don't have to do a thing. And he came running right to me when I came into TV. And I said, dude, just, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? And he said, oh, I already spoke to, uh, to Arnold. And I said, well, why would you do that? You just, you killed our team. You just, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to go to the people that propositioned you. And what do you so, think is going to happen so to them? Nothing. You had a, a th these are all allegations. We have to be very clear about this. Um, but Correct. your friend and former business partner, Mario Mancini, spoke with us the other day and said he knows of at least one incident from years ago that's even worse than some of the yes. worst allegations in Janelle Grant's lawsuit. Do you know yes. what that incident is? And can you tell me I, tonight? I, um, I, I really shouldn't right now. Um, but yes, I do know what it is. And it is worse. Can you, can you characterize it in any way? Um, just that Mario and I are really surprised. We spoke about it. And we're surprised that no one has come forward. But on the flip side, I think that, you know, they're of an age now that, you know, they may be married, have kids, and they don't want to open Pandora's box. And I, I can't blame them. And I, told, I said that to Mario. Can you blame them? Do you, would you really want to open this up, this, this can of worms? No. You wouldn't want to open it up. Paul Roma, I'm, I'm very appreciative of you being on the program, and I think there's obviously some, some things you need to work out before you can speak more freely about this, but I'd like to invite you back on the program and maybe carry on this conversation a little further. Would that be all right? That would be fine. Uh, listen, um, anybody you speak to will tell you that uh, I tell it like it is. I have nothing to hide. I owe the brotherhood of wrestling. I have friends. I have acquaintances. Um, I owe them nothing as far as, you know, the, the organization is concerned. They played a lot of mind games with a lot of people, um, psychological games that, you know, really hurts somebody. And, and questions, where, where's my career? Or I'm out of a job if I don't do this or I don't do that. I don't comply. Uh, I was one of those guys that didn't comply. I was one of the guys who spoke out and said, if they try that with me, I'm going to kill somebody. Because I'm not going to tolerate that. That's not the road I go down. It's not how I was brought up. So either you use me for my ability or get rid of me. But I'm not going down the road you want me to go down. And, you know, again, Vince is fully aware, as are a lot of other guys, fully aware of what I'm speaking about right now. Um, and there's guys that have passed away, you know, vice presidents that are a part of it. Paul, I, um, we're a part of I, it. I want to carry on this conversation. Um, I'm, I'm at the end of this program, but I want to carry on this conversation with you. Uh, these allegations are, are astounding, and uh, they definitely deserve more time. So I'll invite you back. In the meantime, thank you for being on tonight. And to the, our audience, um, we've run out of time, and uh, Chris Cuomo is coming up next. Thanks for being here tonight. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo, so here's the question. Is the war really getting worse in Ukraine, or is this another way to get the funding bill done for Ukraine? We can answer that. 